Welcome to HIV Unmuted, the IAS International AIDS Society's podcast. I'm your host, Femi O.K. From our first episode, we followed the emergence of this mysterious disease in the 1980s, from a likely death sentence to a manageable condition if you have access to medication. Today, many people living with HIV continue to face challenges in accessing HIV services. In Eastern Europe and Central Asia, criminalization, stigma and discrimination are the main barriers to an effective HIV response. And these barriers are particularly prohibitive in Russia. Only the oligarchs have it easy here in Russia. Everyone else, gays, teachers, journalists, people with HIV have it tough. Eastern Europe and Central Asia is the region in the world where new HIV infections are increasing the fastest. In Ukraine, an estimated 260,000 people are living with HIV. Just over half take HIV medication. Many thousands more are at greater risk of acquiring HIV and rely on access to HIV prevention services. The Russian invasion of Ukraine brings into sharp focus the fragility of access to medication and prevention. Humanitarian emergencies and conflict disrupt health services, making people living with and affected by HIV more vulnerable. Conflict also often involves mass displacement, impacting access to healthcare. One in every 100 Ukrainians are living with HIV. A lack of access to HIV medication and prevention services could mean a wave of deaths and risk a resurgence of Ukraine's AIDS pandemic. And in a region with an already rapidly growing HIV epidemic, this could be a public health disaster. With me today are two leading voices from Ukrainian AIDS service organizations. Valeria Rachinska is a director at 100% Life, the largest organization of people living with HIV in Ukraine. She's also openly living with HIV. Andrei Klebikov is an IAS governing council member and the executive director of the Alliance for Public Health. Both are displaced in Ukraine, working to ensure that critical HIV services are not disrupted. Valeria told us about the challenges that they are facing in maintaining continuity of HIV services during the conflict in Ukraine. Right now, already interruptions of treatment started because we don't have like a stocks of medications. We don't have anything to give to people. I'm trying to be, you know, strong now, but you know, today news for us are really heartbreaking. Yesterday, our humanitarian convoy from our volunteers of 100% Life was bombed uh, by Russians. Seven, our volunteers were killed. Seven, our people and people that was like a extremely good people. It's my, some of them were my friends. Some of them I never saw in my life, but I communicated via phone every time and people just came to help. So simply, it, was, it wasn't like a military target and Russians killed them for purpose because they were humanitarians. So, I'm sorry. The personal toll the war is taking on civilians cannot be underestimated. Valeria had plans to meet her colleagues once the war was over. And we were going to meet each other, you know, after war and, you know, love. And maybe on everything that we faced here. And it doesn't happen. It will not happen in the future. And it will not happen, these meetings, for thousands of Ukrainian citizens. Wife will never see their husbands. Husbands will never see their wives. 
children who lose their parents, parents who lose their kids. More than 100 confirmed attacks on health facilities in Ukraine have thrown supply routes in the country into disarray, making it even more difficult to continue providing HIV services. Andre's organization, Alliance for Public Health, is also battling the impacts of the war and struggling to make frontline deliveries of HIV prevention and treatment. Over the next days, next week, these supplies will be running out. So it's critical to renew to renew the supplies. For opioid substitution therapy, situation even more dramatic because we had uh, two production sites and one factory in Kharkiv was bombed and destroyed. Site in Odessa was also attacked. But now we got finally approval of the Global Fund and our brave drivers just deliver medicines in the area like Sumy so close to the fighting borderline, constantly bombarded by Russians. Even in the areas that aren't in direct conflict, there are many obstacles in providing HIV services for thousands of people who fled their home in a rush and didn't take their HIV medication with them. Sometimes left their medicines at home because they left uh, their homes under such huge stress that treatment uh, was no longer a priority. Saving life was uh, the main and sometimes the only priority. Own lives and life of, uh, of the loved one, of the families. Before the invasion, though, Ukraine was making progress in the HIV response and was on the road towards reaching treatment and prevention targets. Our results were really great. When we showed, all our country showed that this consolidation of all the partners, together with government, together with uh, civil society organizations and pensions organizations, we can reach the greatest results. So we are almost reached here. I think we, we would reach the next year, the next year's uh, targets of UNAIDS 90, 90, 90, because almost like uh, all the people were on the treatment yet. The treatment was like an innovative TLD, so one drug, one time a day, so and for everyone. And the efficacy of treatment was really great and uh, everything measurable and everything in positive direction. Right now, people stop to take medication. Life has changed dramatically. It's no longer business as usual. Andre is now living in his office with seven others and two pets since fleeing his home in Kyiv. Day before the war was quite regular and maybe didn't differentiate much from any other NGOs all over the world with some planned routine activities, scheduled meetings, uh, uh, certain time for do some uh, work on, on our computers, email exchange. But now everything has changed. The main change is unpredictability. We don't know what will happen during the next moment. But in terms of the office work, uh, it's definitely not boring uh, because uh, it functions both as a hotline, as a storage, as a shelter. Even as we are speaking to our first two guests, we hear the air raid sirens, a reminder of the immediate threat to life. But this is not the first time Russia has invaded Ukraine. And our guests have witnessed the impact on HIV services before when Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. Uh, unfortunately, uh, experience of annexation of Crimea doesn't give uh, any optimism uh, in the current situation because I clearly remember when uh, 
Following the annexation, Russian uh, police forces came to medical facilities, confiscated all uh, methadone, the medicine used for opioid substitution therapy treatment, for over 800 patients. And they just burned the medicines, like, you know, books were burned in Middle Ages. Some had very severe health consequences following the uh, cancellation of the treatment, cutting off of the treatment. Some committed suicide. So nothing good can happen in these territories under control of Russians. We are not afraid to fight with Russians, but we are afraid to live with them. People are very worried about the long-term public health impacts of Russian occupation. I am concerned about uh, further escalation of, of the conflict because uh, even now uh, the war and Russian aggression caused enormous damage to Ukraine, to Ukrainian people and to the most vulnerable. If we think uh, about the number of people who are at risk of treatment interruption of ARV and TB treatment, this is perhaps the highest number in the world. To better understand the conflict in terms of the broader context of the HIV response in the region where Ukraine is located, I spoke to Dr. Michelle Kazich-King the former executive director of the Global Fund to Fight TB and Malaria and the former UN Secretary General Special Envoy on HIV in Eastern Europe and Central Asia, currently an advisor to the World Health Organization in the region. So great to talk to you. Can you tell me about the region that you're responsible for, what, what it normally looks like and how that has changed because of the Ukraine conflict? Well, the uh, so-called Eastern Europe and Central Asian region is a region of 13 countries and it is basically the only region of the world where the epidemic continues, the HIV epidemic continues to grow. Between 2010 and now, the number of new incident cases has increased by 30%. This is by far because of the Russian Federation. Ukraine, and we'll discuss Ukraine, I suppose, in more detail in a minute, has seen actually a, a decrease in the number of new cases in between 2010 and 2018. Can you be more specific? What is it about the Russian Federation which means that there are an increase in numbers of HIV cases? What is what is going on right. before the conflict? It is what we call a concentrated epidemic. That is an epidemic that is occurring almost exclusively, over 95% in high-risk groups, including people who use drugs or people who have been injecting drugs, and then men having sex with men, sex workers, people incarcerated, transgender, other vulnerable group. What distinguishes Russia from Ukraine, let's say, and from other countries, is that those people are not basically served in the Russian Federation. They're discriminated, well, they're discriminated all over the world, but they're criminalized. So it is very difficult for these vulnerable populations to get access to care. It is also very difficult to get access to prevention. And there is very, very little prevention. There is no PrEP, basically, in the Russian Federation. And for people who use drugs, and I said uh, that's 50% of the new infections, there is no harm reduction. Michelle, you talked about harm reduction. What does that mean? 
Why is it so essential? How has that even become political? Well, harm reduction is a set of interventions that we offer to people who use drugs to reduce the harms of drugs while they continue to use and inject drugs. There are two main interventions. One is the supply of clean needles so that people don't share needles. And the other is what's called opioid substitution therapy that is providing people with a medicine called methadone, which basically gives them the same positive feelings as the heroin, but they do not have to use heroin, they do not have to buy it, and they do not have to inject it. So they're protected from the harms of uncertainty of market, black market, and they're protected from the harms of injection. I am wondering what difference it makes when there is a conflict in a region. And we've we had a, a little sense of a dress rehearsal with Ukraine because their war with and the conflict with Russia started back in 2014. There were certain areas that have been annexed, certain areas where they do not come under Ukraine's current government. What has happened to the HIV communities in those regions? I was very much involved in sort of securing continuity of care. At that time, I was the UN Secretary General's special envoy for HIV for the region. And what happened is, first in Crimea, Crimea became Russian territory, yes, or uh, called Russian territory uh, by the Russian Federation, although not recognized by the international community as, as Russian territory. Uh, therefore, from one day to next, antiretroviral therapy, for example, instead of being uh, supplied by Ukraine, has been supplied by uh, Russia. However, prevention services also followed the Russian pattern. And the key thing is that within a week or 10 days after annexation, Crimea and the Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Lavrov, said, within six weeks, I want all of the harm reduction activities, opioid substitute therapy, to be discontinued. That was unfortunately followed by at least hundreds, the Alliance for Public Health say over 1,000 deaths by suicide and overdose. Very sad. Michelle, what impact will this conflict have on the region in terms of public health? The other countries that are independent, of course, are independent, but they still economically dependent on the Russian Federation because most of their uh, workforce migrates to Russia where there are six or seven millions labor migrants, you know, from Central Asia, from the Caucasus. And these countries are very dependent. Their currencies are annexed on the ruble. The ruble has dropped 50%. So the capacity for these countries to buy their medicines and their capacities to adapt their systems also to an influx of, of refugees. You know, there's somewhere like 300,000 people are estimated to have fled to the east and south, not only to Russia, but to uh, Kazakhstan, to uh, Kyrgyzstan, to Georgia, to Armenia. The capacity of those countries to support these refugees, uh, I think, will be very limited. 
What information are you able to gather at this stage about the HIV epidemic in the whole of Ukraine, now that the whole of Ukraine is at war with Russia? In the areas where there's ongoing fighting, you know, the hot areas you see on TV, Kharkiv, uh, Mariupol, whatever, it's, it's war, it's destruction, it's collapse of health systems. So uh, medicines and access to medicines is not anymore the priority to anyone. The priority is to survive and, and to fight. But in most of Ukrainian territory, despite the threat, despite the, the challenges uh, with roads that are blocked, with uh, people fleeing, with sometimes uh, bridges destroyed and so on, Dis despite all of the logistic challenges, somehow the system continues to work. Misha, that, that really is extraordinary. In the middle of a conflict, the systems that we've been put in place up until invasion, Russian invasion, are still functioning. Yes, they are. It is remarkable. And of course, everyone is, is very much mobilized. What does this tell us, Michelle, about how to manage the HIV epidemic during a humanitarian crisis? What lessons are we learning from Ukraine? Well, the first lesson, I think, is that a war is a catastrophe for health. Of course, in the emergency period that we're in now, but I'm very concerned per personally about the next few months and, and coming two, three years. I really expect a big health crisis across the region. We need a ceasefire. We need humanitarian corridors, you know, to deal with the emergency. Then the, the second lesson is the extraordinary resilience of, of the healthcare system that we're witnessing and of healthcare workers. And the next lesson maybe is the, the speed at which the international system and the international solidarity has organized itself. I'm in touch, in close touch with the regional office of the World Health Organization, with uh, neighboring countries, Moldova, Poland, um, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and the Romania, and so on. And it's amazing, not only are they putting together shelters, uh, uh, families are offering lodging, but for example, there are already schools in Ukrainian language that opened in many of these, uh, of these countries within two weeks after the beginning of the conflict. And the health system community, the health care community, sorry, is very much mobilized. WHO is, is currently organizing stocks of, of needed medicines, antiretroviral drugs, anti-tuberculosis drugs in sort of hubs across the region so that uh, continuity of treatment is ensured. So the IAS, which is the sort of incarnation of the movement, I think can be proud of having brought all of these people from the public sector, from the private sector, from the communities, the civil society together in this fight. And now it is paying off in difficult times. War is horrible. It is death and suffering. It is also an extraordinary uh, mobilization of, of solidarity.
Because Ukraine's HIV response has been pioneered through public and community partnerships, it has continued to provide for people even through the horrors of war. We don't know what the long-term effects of this conflict will be on Ukraine's progress in the HIV response. In the meantime, Valeria, Andre, and their organizations are defining their work differently in the face of expanding needs. We are acting strongly and very openly to all emerging needs. I am proud that we didn't say no to any request. And those are goes beyond uh, uh, usual scope. Sometimes it's uh, humanitarian things, sometimes personal support. So it goes much wider than our initial mandate, but we managed to address and be responsive to all the emerging needs. Why do people like Valeria and Andre stay? Why do they continue to provide these much needed services at great risk to themselves? I don't know, I cannot explain this feeling. But I know that my place here and I need to feed people, I need to make a logistic, I need to make evacuation, I need to protect. So maybe I wouldn't be a good soldier, but I'm a good protector and I'm a good humanitarian. So I'm trying to be on my place. But their dedication, their resilience and their strength strikes at the heart of fundamental human rights. It's always important to remember that those who needed our help and were in a desperate situation in the normal conditions, they require much more uh, in the given situation of the war conflict. And uh, they need more, more support. And we as an organization uh, supporting these people also would appreciate your support. And together we will win. We are witnessing some of the worst humanity has to offer in the atrocities committed in Ukraine. These events continue to make people living with and affected by HIV even more vulnerable. But among the sadness and despair, there are stories of resilience from people who illustrate the best of society, people who risk their own lives, whose colleagues are given their lives to bring help and hope. If you want to help those in need in Ukraine, please click on the show notes for more links and information. If you're listening to this episode before the 29th of July 2022 and want to learn more about how conflict impacts people living with HIV and the latest scientific breakthroughs in the HIV response, attend the 24th International AIDS Conference, AIDS 2022, virtually or in person in Montreal. Until next time, I'm Femi OK with HIV Unmuted, the IAS International AIDS Society's podcast. It's true. You can't keep us quiet.